Our text for today comes from John 20, verses uh, 11 through 18. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them uh, that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. You know, sometimes, oh, perfect. I thought she would have to go a long ways for that, but then it all of a sudden it appeared. You know, sometimes when we read a mistake uh, in the story of the Bible, it is not a mistake at all. Uh, And I think this episode from our teaching text today is one of those examples of John's uh, telling of a story where somebody makes a seeming mistake, but it actually tells us something significant about what's actually happening in the story. You know, we're in a series where we're looking at the story of the Bible, the full story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and looking at the kind of big, um, the big rocks, if you will, the big uh, story points in the story of the Bible. And today we are talking about probably, uh, well, definitely the biggest uh, person in the story of the Bible, Jesus. I made the joke this morning that we're talking about Jesus today at church, uh, which, you know, is novel, I suppose. Um, but, but specifically, we are going to look at the story of Jesus through the eyes of Mary uh, and her experience of the risen Christ and to look to this teaching text to tell us what exactly does, does Jesus' death and resurrection mean for the story? What, what is the writer of, this gosp- of these gospels, of this, the r- different writers of these Bibles, what are they attempting to communicate to us through this story? So that's where we're headed today. You know, in any type of storytelling, there is often a character in the story, whether you're reading a book or whether you're watching a movie, there's often a a character called a POV character or a point of view character. This is the character in any story who is meant to represent or stand in for us, the audience. They kind of learn about what is happening in the story at the same pace as those of us who are reading or watching a particular story. They're discovering things right along with us. And in John's telling of the story of Jesus' resurrection in our teaching text for today, Mary Magdalene is this type of character. She's a point-of-view character. She is helping us, as we are reading the story, to really kind of figure out what is going on here. What is going on here? What is actually happening? And she, like we probably would have if we were in her shoes, uh, get, uh, she gets a little confused in the story, doesn't she? She mistakenly believes that the resurrected Jesus is a gardener, that he's a gardener. 
Now, these are the type of details that are easy to miss if you're just reading the story uh, in isolation. But if you're reading the Bible as a story, like we are talking about in this sermon series, uh, you'll you'll realize that there might be something deeper, more significant being communicated in this teaching text today. If you've been reading the Bible with us over this year, it was just a little bit over a month ago. I believe we're in numbers right now, so you guys are having a good time in your in your reading. Uh, but uh, just, it was just over a month ago that we read the creation story at the beginning of the book of Genesis, wasn't it? A story where we are told God creates humanity and places them in a... Correct, you all win today. Uh, and in, in the, they places them in this garden called Eden, and men and women are united with God in that place, uh, in relationship, and they are given responsibilities of tending to creation. In a way, you could say that the first job that human beings were given were to be gardeners, in a sense. And in John's gospel, when he wants to help people really understand what the resurrection of Jesus means, what's the significance of what is going on here, he tells us the story of Mary Magdalene and her very fortunate mistake of believing that Jesus is, in fact, a gardener. What a poetic way of telling us the story, isn't it? Do you, you hear the echoes of Scripture through this story, don't you? You see, John is showing us through the eyes of Mary Magdalene that something that was lost in literally the first three chapters of the story of, in the book of Genesis has now been miraculously restored some way, somehow, in the resurrection of Jesus. We are told, uh, we are not told necessarily all the details of how it happened at this point in the story. We know he died we know, uh, and we know he was raised again, and none of the characters in the story immediately following Jesus' resurrection can get their minds or their hearts fully around what has just took place. And the rest of the New Testament is a story of the apostles and early Christians really trying to come to terms, uh, believing in Jesus and following him, but trying to come to terms with understanding what exactly just took place here. But we know what John tells us. Uh, that, and through Mary's eyes, we are com John communicates to us that everything has changed, that something has been restored that was lost, that something, uh, something, something that was lost has now been in some sense found. What on the surface looked like a defeat in Jesus' crucifixion was actually a kind of cosmic victory. Have you ever had one of those defining moments in your life where you were just completely knocked off course by that thing? This happens to us all of the time. If someone wrote a book about your life, what are the defining moments that would obviously be chapter headings? For many of us, these are the type of, uh, when we experience these type of life-defining moments, uh, our response is similar, right? We kind of define our lives as before and after this life-defining experience. If you've ever talked to anybody who's dealt with a, with a life-defining illness like cancer, they will very often say, my life was one way before cancer, and after cancer it was another way, right? You hear people talk a lot about this with children, right? That their life was one way, and I can attest to this, their life was one way before children, and it was another way after children. You hear people say, I held this little baby in my arms, right? And something in my heart shifted. Something in my life changed. Uh, 
For others, the life-defining event is, if we just got through a Valentine's Day, love. Love, isn't it? Uh, the romantics in the room will identify with this. Some of us are less romantic than others. But, you know, you, it's, we have these stories, right? I saw her across a smoke-filled room, right? I don't know why there was so much smoke in the room, but anyways, uh, it just makes it sound more romantic. Uh, and my life was never the same, right? These moments define us, and they, they transform us. Uh, one of my favorite bands in college was this emo band called Bright Eyes, which is a very emo name for a band. Uh, and he has, they have this song called The First Day of My Life. And I think uh, he really def defines well the feeling of having a life-transforming moment, what one of those moments actually feels like. The, I have the lyrics for the first two verses up on the screen for you, just in case you want to know. He says, uh, this is the first day of my life. I swear I was born right in the doorway. I went, not, I went out in the rain, and suddenly everything changed. They're spreading blankets on the beach. Yours was the first face that I saw. I thought I was blind before I met you. And I don't know where I am, and I don't know where I've been, but I know where I want to go. It's a really good song. You can look it up on YouTube after church. Uh, we know that feeling, right? We know that feeling of suddenly everything kind of shifting under our feet, of not being aware of what we're doing, not being 100% of what is even actually happening to us, but we know something has changed, right? We know this feeling. And this is the impression I get when I read this story that John tells us in John's Gospel. This is kind of what Mary Magdalene is experiencing. She doesn't know where she is and she doesn't know where she's been, but she's going to follow this man, Jesus, right? And, and in the story, we know this because she's crying. Apparently, she's crying really, really hard. She goes from abject grief to total elation in the span of just a few verses. She's crying so hard that both two angels in what was Jesus's tomb and Jesus himself basically go, are you okay? <laughs> like, you, have a, you seem very emotional. And yet, in the story, there is this deep-seated sense that something monumental has shifted. Something dramatic has shifted. And what Mary is experiencing here, and I think what John is trying to communicate to us, is not that just one life has shifted, that this has been a life-defining event for just Mary Magdalene. I think the way in which John tells the story tells us something even more significant than that. that what, what Mary is a witness to in this story is a pivotal and defining event for the entirety of the world. Actually, the defining event for the entirety of the world. The 21st century journalist and Christian writer, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, says it better than I can. He says this, On the third day, the friends of Jesus coming at daybreak to the place found that grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died that night. What they, what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth, and in, a semblance of, and in the semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. I think this is what John is trying to tell us with this story. I really do. That in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the first day of a new creation has begun. The dawn of a new era, the beginning of a whole new world. And Jesus, as a gardener, is supposed to be, for us, a kind of new Adam, a second Adam. The Apostle Paul plays off this idea uh, uh, in Romans, in the book of Romans, chapter 5. 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. In this passage, Paul is talking about this very idea that Jesus is like a second Adam and the work that he accomplished in his resurrection. And he says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 13, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is, who is a pattern of the one to come. And then you can jump down to verse 16, or 17, excuse me. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul puts together the puzzle pieces, in a sense, for us in this passage. What threw Mary off and what she didn't necessarily understand, she, she understood the weight of what was happening, but she didn't understand the detail. Paul, again, explains it to us like he often does. Adam was a pattern of the one to come, Paul says. Through Adam's sin, uh, through Adam's sin, sin entered the world, and through sin, death reigned. Death and sin reigned or ruled or had authority in a sense. But through Christ, a new world has been made available to everyone by which the gift of righteousness, the gifts of righteousness and life now reign. This is the message of what Jesus accomplished. Because of, of Christ's death and resurrection, everything is now different. This is what the story of the Bible attempts to communicate to us. Jesus is the pinnacle. He's the, he's the end. He's the primary point of the biblical story. Jesus, this person who is both fully man and fully God, through his death and resurrection, has ushered in a kind of new age. The kingdom of God has come. The power of death and sin have been defeated. And now we, as individuals who were once under the threat or reign of death, have been, it has been made available to us, a kind of restored relationship with the creator of the universe once more. But it's at this point that we kind of run into a question, isn't it? At least there's a question in my heart when I think about this. I know this to be true. I, we experience it, it, it in the scriptures that Christ's death and resurrection have opened up a whole new world in which my personal sin and death full stop have been defeated. But there's a problem. Things still kind of stink sometimes, right? If Jesus did all of this work, if a new day was made available to all of humanity on the day that Christ was resurrected from the dead, why is there still sin? If a new world of righteousness and life and peace and justice have kind of exploded onto the scene, then why do all of the things that we know that are bad still happen, right? We prayed about it today, didn't we? And it's around us all the time. I was listening to a podcast this week by a, by a lady who was like a, a youth specialist, and she was uh, talking about a curriculum that she was producing because of the levels of depression and anxiety that are on the rise amongst youth. Um, the, I don't know if you know this, but it was literally negative 17 degrees this week, right? We feel acutely the brokenness in our world and when we see that type of brokenness, when we, when we experience that type of sin, when we look inside our own hearts and see the ways that we don't love God fully and the ways in which we are 
our hearts are partial, right? It's hard for us to look at those things on the surface, on the face of them, and believe that a whole new world, a new creation has been made available to us in the death of re and resurrection of Jesus. It's difficult. We are told that sin and death have been defeated and that by faith that victory can be ours, but I don't know about you, but sometimes sin still feels like it's with me, right? I yelled at my kids yesterday. Um, we had to go to Wacky Winterfest and we were a little behind, right? And so I yelled at my kids. Which is, which, you know, Wacky Winterfest isn't the type of event that should be, <laughs> should ascend to the level of me yelling at my kids, but <laughs> it happens, right? We know, we know the sin that resides within us. We know our own brokenness. And yet, this hope is held out for us in the story of the Bible, that a whole new world has been made available to us that our sins have been forgiven, that we've been restored into right relationship with the creator of the universe. So how do these two things, these two realities, coexist in our lives? How do we make sense of them in such a way as that we can move forward with hope and with purpose? How do we, and here's the question, how do we access that new world that's been made available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus in such a way as that it has real import, real influence in my own life? How do we do that? Well, the good news for us is that the biblical writers actually struggle with this question. Read just about any Bible, uh, any uh, book in the New Testament, and what you will find is that there is a, the, the writers of these books are kind of struggling, trying to answer these questions. Paul, specifically, is answering them a lot in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. You can read through 1 Corinthians and read that. Uh, Paul is struggling with a community of Christians who are not living up to the standards that Paul would like them to live up to, and so he's, he's struggling with this uh, with this problem of the fact that these people have been, they have been made new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away and new things have come, and yet they're just dealing with all of this junk. And Paul's trying to figure out, like, how, how do these two things coexist? How do, how do I make these people realize what it is that's actually going on here in such a way as that they can live into the fullness of life and into the new creation that's been made available in Christ? My one of my favorite writers who talks about this is uh, Peter, specifically in the book of First Peter. Peter is talking to a group of Christians in the ancient world who were enduring persecution. They were, they were struggling with the world in which they found themselves. And, and Peter's trying to give them hope and purpose in the midst of a broken situation. And what he tells these Christians is fascinating to me. And I think it helps us kind of make sense of how we straddle the line between the new creation that's made available in Christ and the old world that we still all live in in some sense. It's really helpful. What Peter tells these Christians in the, in the whole first book of First Peter, you can read it this afternoon if you're interested. But he tells these Christians is, is that they need to adopt what I, what I would call a kind of a pilgrim spirituality, a kind of pilgrim spirituality. He actually tells them that they are to view themselves as foreigners and strangers in, a, in the land, that they are to see themselves as people who... Uh, live in one country, but belong to another country. It's an, it's an interesting analogy he uses. In, as Christ followers, we belong to a new world made available in Jesus. That's our home. That's where we belong. But we still live in the ruins of the broken world that we see all around us, right? This is where we live. But that reality is not meant to rob us of hope. 
In fact, we are called to live as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. This is biblical language. And build, in the, in the language of the Bible, little outposts of his grace and love, his peace, his reconciliation, in, and his hope in the midst of a hurting world. This is what the church is. Little outposts of God's kingdom springing up all over the place in the world. Peter says it explicitly uh, in 1 Peter uh, 2, verses 11 through 12 and 17. This is what he says. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Skipping down to verse 17, he says, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is what Peter says. This is Peter's vision of how we live in the tension of the new world that's been made available through Christ and living in the old world. Peter's vision and the vision of all the New Testament writers is that in Christ, a new world has been made available. Sin and death have been defeated. Ultimately, it's over. It's done. And now we're called to live in the light of Christ's death and resurrection. And we are called to invite others along on that journey as well. This is what it means. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what the death and resurrection means in the story. We are all invited to live now in the ruins of the old world as citizens of the new world that is coming towards us. And that has all kinds of incredible implications for the way we live, doesn't it? It doesn't mean we cordon ourselves off, right? It doesn't mean we separate ourselves. It doesn't mean we start little communes off in the hills somewhere, right? In, in case you were wondering if I was going to argue for communes today. <laughs> That's not what we're called to do. We are simply called to live in, the, in, the, in our own particular situations as citizens of the new world in the midst of a broken world. And we are called to bring the ethics, the life, the light of that new world to bear in our current situation. This is the way N.T. Wright says it. Once again, he says it better than me all the time. He says, made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of the present world. That, quite simply, is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. That's what it means to be a Christian, to follow the example of Jesus Christ into the new world that has been thrown open before us. And so the question, I think, is, how are you called to do that, right? How am I called to do that? It's difficult, right? It's difficult to see this path. It makes sense. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. But, you know, I get indigestion sometimes, right? And that throws me off base. I don't know. Things happen. My kids try to climb under the chairs during worship, and I have to correct them in front of you. Like, 
things are not always what they should be. And yet, and yet, we live in the midst of this tension in which a whole new world has been flung open to us. Our sin, our shame, all of it is meant to be left in the tomb with Jesus. He took care of it completely, and he left it, and, and he took it from us, and we're called to leave it behind. And yet, and yet, we live in this world. But we are called to live in this world as citizens of the new world, ushering in the reign and the rule, the kingdom of God in the language of Jesus in such a way as that people see our good deeds in the language of Peter and glorify our Father in heaven. It's, it's, do, you know, do you see how all-encompassing this, this teaching from the scriptures is? It encompasses the whole of our lives. It encompasses our soul, right? Giving our lives to Jesus, believing on his death and resurrection for the salvation of our souls. But at that point, then, it begins to encompass everything we do, everything we say, and everything we are. It should not be uh, this message, this gospel that John tells us about is not relegated to what happens to me after I die. That's an important piece. But the most important piece is the effects that that has on my current life as I live as a citizen of heaven in the kingdom of the world. That's the most important piece. And we are called by Jesus to live that way in our current circumstances. And so the question again for us is, how do we do that? And I can't answer that question for you. Only you can answer that question. As a community, we are called to represent the rule and reign of Jesus in the world, but the way we do that will look entirely different from community to community, from person to person. And the truth of the matter is, is you know because I know too, right? The ways in which God is asking you to be an agent of restoration and hope, of light and love, of redemption in the midst of the broken situations where you find yourself every day. The first and maybe biggest challenge of this is simply allowing that salvation to enter our own lives, right? And believing Jesus to accept his grace. But then the next piece is what, is, what does it look like to be a pilgrim people? citizens of heaven in the midst of a broken world. And for each of us, it will look different. It will look different. Maybe it's just about loving that one person that you know hasn't received love this week. Maybe it's about learning to not yell at your kids on the way to Wacky Winterfest. That's part of it for me. Maybe it's about instead of spending your money on yourself, spending your money in such a way as that it frees up other people to live flourishing lives right? Maybe it looks like watching a little bit less Netflix and serving and loving people a little bit more. Did somebody say no? Okay. Okay, never mind. It looks like watching Netflix all day. How's that sound? I don't know what it looks like for you, but this vision that's put forward for us about what, this, what, what the life and death of, of Jesus means for us is so big and all-encompassing. It is so big and all-encompassing. It doesn't look, in the words of N.T. Wright, it doesn't look like, jo it look like pleasure, it looks like joy, right? It is a peacemaking uh, vocation. It is, a, it is a vocation of friendship, true and lasting friendship in a world of cursory and kind of phantom-like relationships, right? It is a vocation of, 
of righteousness in the midst of a culture where righteousness is uh, so sorely lacking. It looks like honor where honor is due, right? It looks like justice for those who do not have justice. It looks like love. You know, one of my favorite writers says, justice is just what love looks like in public, right? To see the rightness of God's rule and reign enacted in other people's lives is just what love looks like in public. And so as followers of Jesus, we're provided this opportunity to access the new life made available to us in the person of Christ so that we can live as agents of that restoration and renewal out into our communities. That's what the story is all about. And so that we all together, via our lives and with our words and with our hearts, with the depths of our being, can worship God fully, be restored into healthy relationship with him, and then be agents of his renewal and reconciliation out into the world. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a life-encompassing picture, and it's something that if we catch the vision of it, we can give our whole lives to. But the problem is, is too often we kind of cast our eyes south of that, don't we? We don't see the bigness of what it is that Jesus has done, and we just kind of see it as like my own personal behavior modification program, right? Like, I just, here's, the, here's the things I do, and here's the things I don't do, and if I don't do the bad stuff and I do the good stuff, then everything's fine, right? And I get a gold medal or something. It's not, that's not the picture that the Bible lays out for us. It's not religious moralism. It is a whole new world. It is a whole new reality. You have entered the upside down in a good way, right? That's what has happened. Sorry if you don't get that reference. Don't judge me if you do. Uh, anyways, all right. I think that's all I got today. I know that's, let's stand. Can we stand together? And as we, as we close today, I just want to pray for you. In what way does God, is God calling you through this vital connection in relationship to Jesus? Is, in what way is God calling you to be an agent of renewal and restoration in your context? What is God calling you to do? How is he calling you to create a little outpost of heaven, right, in the midst of a broken world? What, what mission have you been given in your life? What calling have you been given in your life to enact this story in the midst of your own, uh, in your own workplace, with your own friends, uh, wherever it is you get coffee, right? What, what, what are you called to do? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we pray that you would uh, impact us with the significance of this story, this message. We thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death of Jesus that covered our sins and made it possible for us to enter back into right relationship with God, the creator of the universe. We thank you that our sins are no longer held against us because of the grace and love of Jesus and the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us. And God, we pray that you would help us to live into the possibilities made available for us this week in the resurrection of Jesus. Would we know at the depths of our souls, at the core of our beings, that a new world has been made available to us, new resources have been available, made available to us, that we have been given new hearts and new purpose. And that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our lack, in the midst of our weakness, you are strong. We depend on the, the guiding and the strength of the Holy Spirit this week to be agents of God's reconciliation and renewal in our communities. 
And we ask this week, if we don't already know what task you would have us put our hands to, that you would show us. That you could show us where we could be your kingdom people in the world. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Before we conclude today, if I could have a couple of prayer team members come forward. Uh, we just want to make the prayer team available for any of you who, uh, if any way you want to respond to this message today, if you carried a burden in here and you'd like somebody to partner with you in prayer this morning, uh, if you want to respond to this message uh, and pray through what it is that God might be asking you to do today, uh, the prayer team's up here and available for you uh, to pray. All right? Uh, all right. So uh, go today in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks.